Hello, hello, and welcome to Legendary, your favorite myths and legends podcast. Why is it your favorite? Because I just said so. Today on the show, we're super excited to have Canadian author Joshua Gillingham talking about his debut novel, The Gatewatch. The Gatewatch is the first installment in the saga of Torrenten Trees, a series chock full of terrible trolls, meddling dwarves, and non-stop adventure, inspired by the wonderful and wacky world of Norse mythology. Josh is from the scenic city of Nanaimo, British Columbia, where he lives with his adventurous spouse and their two very unadventurous cats. He's also a musician who performs Irish and maritime music with The Ugly Mugs, and a Viking-themed board game designer for Stormhammer Games. His award-winning essay, Becoming a Resilient Writer, has been featured on several sites for aspiring writers. Alright, that's it from me. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sexy, and enjoy the interview. Hey, Josh. Welcome to Legendary. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, such a pleasure to be here. So um, I just want to get into a little bit of background first. Can you tell me a little bit about what brought you to writing? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I've always been a bit of an imaginative person. My grandma liked to recall, you know, the stories. I would make my brother sit down and listen to these stories that I made up in my head. And somewhere beneath kind of everything else I was doing, I always knew I wanted to write and Sometimes it almost felt like a, a bit of a, a, like I had a disease or something that was catching up with me. I just wouldn't let me go. So I, I started writing when I was young and I kind of ignored it in university. I was, I was doing mathematics and very uh, heavy science courses, but I did end up sneaking in as uh, an additional credit, a creative writing course. And that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And ever since then, I, I had this in my mind that I, I did want to write and worked on a few projects here and there. And mm-hmm. it's only now that my first full length novel is coming out. So it was, it was a long journey, but uh, uh, in some ways I can kind of see the thread of it through my upbringing and through my university career. That's amazing. So, so you say this is your first full length novel. Have you written like some short stories or? I have written a fair number of short stories, um, a few poems, but I, I did actually start with the novel. The, the short stories came afterwards. I was looking up advice on, you know, if you want to be published as an author, you should probably yeah. have some, some short stories published. And I actually did, I did it the wrong way. I started with the novel and uh, I explicitly remember reading a blog post one time that was saying, you know, if you want to get published, don't start with a novel because if your novel sucks, you can waste <laughs> three years on it, right? Whereas if you write a short story and, you know, it's not great, then it's only a few months. And I thought to myself, oh no, I was near the end of my first book and I was starting to query agents and I thought, oh, this is terrible. But the stars aligned and things worked out and um, the the first book's coming out now. I think maybe your book was just really good. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, well, I, I hope so. We'll see. It's a strange thing to sort of imagine a story in your mind and to enjoy exploring the world. And it's a little bit scary to push it out there right so but no I'm really excited to have the book finally come out great um so okay obviously there's Norse mythology in your book can I just ask like have you always loved Norse mythology or are you only exploring it now in this novel yeah great question and I did not always love Norse mythology and it was fact uh during my education degree at uh, university there was a club on campus called uh, this is great they're the last alliance club and they were <laughs> a Tolkien dedicated nerdy academic group headed by one of the English professors who would meet once a week and discuss the Lord of the Rings um, as well as other works of Tolkien and I somehow found this group 
uh, I remember that very explicitly the first day I walked in, it was one of the old buildings on the university campus that kind of was trying to be Oxford sort of thing. So it had a fireplace and it totally felt like a place Tolkien would hang out. Mm. And I distinctly remember everybody sort of mingling. It's the first day in September, everybody's excited for school. And um, the leader of the group kicks off her shoes, jumps <laughs> up on the tables and starts doing the Bilbo speech, like verbatim from memory, uh, <laughs> but just that sort of the club. And I knew then I'd found my people. And that's where I wanted to be. Uh, but it was at that time, and that was my second degree actually in university, I, I took a bit of a wandering path that I really started to think a little bit more about the Tolkien stuff, which I'd enjoyed as a kid, uh, but then also the Norse myths. There was a huge library full of things at the University University of Alberta where I was, and I discovered the Norse myths through uh, just wandering their bookshelves. Very close to that was also the Icelandic sagas, which I had no clue even existed before I started exploring some of the back dusty corners of the library. And I also really enjoyed those. So both the North Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas played a really important part in creating some of the sort of fantastic landscape of the book. That's amazing. I was actually going to ask you later on, but you've already answered this, um, you know, was Tolkien an inspiration? Because obviously <laughs> he uses Norse myths and everything. Um, I read all about that. I actually did and uh, my honest project on Tolkien's novels. Oh, very cool. Very yeah, cool. but that's that's amazing. That's really cool. I actually have no idea what the Icelandic saga, so you need to tell me all about that. Oh, I'll tell you all. I'll talk your ear off. Sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I could throw one more thing out there about Tolkien, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody loves Tolkien. If you're into fantasy, you probably love Tolkien. Um, and he was obviously amazing. But the other thing I've enjoyed from him, well, two things, actually. One are his translations of some works. He was a professor of linguistics. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's got an amazing translation of The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, which was released um, as edited by his son, Christopher Tolkien, a while back, which has nothing to do with Lord of the Rings, but is uh, kind of in his voice. And it's his interpretation of... Um, uh, a saga, which I think I think you mentioned earlier in a, another podcast, which was uh, Anvari's Ring, was part of that whole whole conversation too. So I definitely encourage you if you're into Tolkien, you kind of felt feel like you've covered all the Lord of the Rings stuff, go check out some of his translations. Yeah, I definitely will. Thanks so much for that. Okay, so um, give me tell me a little bit about what the Gatewatch is about. What in particular do you think is going to really grab the attention of readers? Yeah, so the Gatewatch is a troll hunting misadventure inspired by the Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas, and it follows the story of three young troll hunters who are headed to Gatewatch to defend the realm of Noros from trolls. Now, this is something that all the young people in Noros have to do. They have to go for two years, kind of like military service, and defend the borders from the trolls. Because if they don't, uh, the trolls will once again run over the land and cause all sorts of havoc. And so they're on their way and they haven't even arrived in this mountain town of Gatewatch before they start running into trouble uh, as they run into a band of dwarves along the road. And uh, the journey sort of begins from there. They meet some uh, uh, very vibrant characters in Gatewatch and soon sort of find themselves off the beaten path, uh, uh, lost underground and uh, captured by trolls. And the story kind of takes off from there. That's amazing. It definitely sounds like a book I'm going to enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So uh, troll hunting, let's talk a little bit about that. I, think, I mean, I think it has popped up in quite a few books, but what's, like, what's the idea behind it? What's the folklore behind that? Great question. Um, so I, I do have a little bit of a family connection with um, the Norse myths and that like my, on my dad's side, uh, all my uh, relatives came from Sweden and Norway. So I had a great grandma who was born in Norway and came over and spoke a little bit in Norwegian, uh, who would share troll stories with us when we were little kids. And, and there was sort of this whimsical folklore around trolls in Norway that uh, I always really enjoyed. 
it was really solidified when I traveled to Norway with my wife on a trip in 2017. Uh, we got to travel around to some of the towns where my family had been from and uh, do some of the hikes. Oh, the hikes, they were amazing. Um, the food is awful. In fact, <laughs> I, I, asked, I asked somebody, uh, I, I wanted to get some fish because I thought, you know, fishing industry in Norway is big. Can I get some, some good fish from this restaurant? And he just shook his head and said to me that uh, uh, the Norwegians are smart because they sell all the good fish for lots of money and then they're, they're happy just eating the leftovers okay all right well uh, i'm sure that does not uh, represent everybody in norway but that was that was our experience um but there too uh, the culture is very infused with that sort of folkloric idea of trolls and they're, they're sort of mischievous and they're also kind of terrifying but uh they're also kind of comical in a sense and i really wanted to capture that um as well as with the norse myths i think there's been sort of a cultural narrative around kind of how the norse myths have developed through uh the lens of the, particularly tolkien but also other people who have um, picked up sort of the fantasy genre since then. And there are some sort of tropes about trolls and, and actually dwarves in particular too, which are addressed in the book that uh, have strayed a fair bit away from where, how they were originally depicted either in folklore and the Norse myths. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to capture a little bit of that magic and um, challenge or push on a few of the tropes that you might see in uh, more modern, like, like for example, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is kind of a, a universe built in some of those tropes I wanted to challenge. They, they don't mesh uh, really with the original uh, tellings in the sagas, and uh, also portrayals of trolls in uh, modern fantasy. They're often kind of like, almost like goblins, basically, like big goblins sometimes. I wanted to get back to this whole idea of trolls being very natural, being very part of the part of the forest, being a little bit dull-witted, but then also, you know, having some magic about them. Mm, not just like the usual stupid troll that you would find in like uh, Harry Potter, for example. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. So, so would you say you're sticking quite closely to um, Norse mythology, the, the, the folklore, etc.? I, I actually started the book as sort of a retelling of Norse myths, and it quickly sort of grew a brain of its own and legs and, and ran off, and I just ran as fast as I could to try to catch up with it. So it's, it's not set in the world of the Norse myths, but it's definitely inspired by the world of the Norse myths and tries to echo some of the themes and some of the ideas from the Norse myths uh, a little bit more closely maybe than, than typical modern fantasy would. And so, for example, the three main characters, uh, Torin Tentries, who is the main character, and his two friends, Bryn and Grimsa, are modeled after the three main characters typically portrayed in the Norse myths, which are Odin, Thor, and Loki. And their personality traits align with uh, uh, the three gods and some of their experiences, if you are familiar with the Norse myths, will definitely pop out at you. I've had a few uh, readers already who are reviewing the book email me in the middle of reading it and say, oh, this part is from this myth, and oh, this section is totally inspired by that. And so I'm glad people are picking up those influences. That's so brilliant. It's actually, I think it's really special that, that your novel comes like partly from your family background, like a personal background. I think it makes it a lot more special. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's been neat for me. And even to see my family's reaction to it, it's a little bit of sort of family celebration of like, oh, yeah, this is kind of a part of our past and, and our heritage. And, and of course, whenever you're talking about the Norse myths, you, you have to address the Norse myths have been used in some, some, some truly terrible ways throughout history. And uh, people have tried to uh, uh, sort of warp them for political purposes. And uh, Tolkien himself was very famous for, for, for commenting on this, how, uh, you know, at certain points in time, he, he, was, he was so angry with how these myths, these sort of cultural artifacts were being taken and sort of warped into weapons or, or war machines. And so uh, for me, maybe that's a part of it too. It's just uh, staking a claim and trying to reclaim some of these uh, stories from uh, from people who kind of warped them for, for different purposes and return to a little bit more of the original enjoyment that people had over them as, as folk stories. It's amazing. I think actually that's, that's so important to do. 
Um, so on your on your website, I read that uh, you said that the Canadian Rockies factored into your inspiration for the book. What's the connection between Canada and Norse mythology? Because off my head, I'm like, I don't see the connection. That is a great question. Well, um, the town that I was born in, in northern Alberta, was, uh, and, and now Canada's interesting, right? As a, It's got a colonial history, um, as well as, uh, you know, many places uh, in Africa, in the States, and South America. So there's this uh, trend that happened in that a lot of those small rural communities were often centered around a particular uh, group of people from a particular country. So there was a small Norwegian farming community that my family came from in northern Alberta, and uh, actually across the prairies, there, there are many, many Scandinavian communities. And <laughs> It, it's, it's kind of funny, when I was in Norway, I was really searching for that traditional sort of artwork and music and songs that I found, you know, hints of in that northern community when we go back to visit. And when I asked some of the artists in the shops, I said, you know, where's the traditional, for example, rose smelling is this beautiful painting style that's uh, sort of traditional to some of the Scandinavian countries. They said, if you want to see really good traditional, and several shop owners told me this in Norway, they said, if you want to see really good traditional artwork, go to Minnesota, because there's more people in Minnesota who <laughs> Norwegian and there are actual Norwegians living in Norway. So there's this strange thing where, um, you know, some of the traditional culture almost gets preserved better in places away from the home country because the home country is continually evolving and moving forward and they're maybe not as invested in holding on to all those traditions um, as a part of their identity. They're sort of forming a new identity and, and, and sticking more with the modern times. So um, there's definitely a Scandinavian connection in Canada in terms of people who came over from Canada. But I felt like I had these ideas and these characters and not really a setting to work with. And I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, which is uh, fairly close to the Rocky Mountains. And when I would go for hikes and adventures, it was always to Jasper National Park or Banff National Park. And um, if you ever get a chance to go, uh, anybody who's listening, definitely go there. They are majestic. They are rugged. They, you can't believe as they rise up from the prairies how just astonishingly massive they are. And I thought, what better setting for this epic fantasy adventure with troll hunting Vikings could there be than, than the Canadian Rocky Mountains? And it's something I knew. So uh, in terms of describing the world and describing the scenes, even things like the foliage and the trees and what the rivers look like and sound like, uh, I could draw on my own personal experience from that a little bit more. That's amazing. It's interesting that you say that because... Um... It's true when you think about uh, you know, traditional fantasy, you think, okay, places in, in the UK and Scotland, but there's actually, for example, in South Africa, so many beautiful natural places that when you go in there, you think, well, this, this is a fantastical world. Totally, totally. Yes. Well, and I know that there's an Irish concept um, called, called thin places, and thin places are sort of like where the world of magic and the world of reality, like the barrier between them is very thin, where you kind of you can get that feeling like when you're walking in the forest and I, I think those places exist all over the world and I'd love to see more fantasy set in unique places uh, uh, like places in South Africa or places I know a lot of um, Asian uh, fantasy is coming out now in, in Asian settings which is such a cool backdrop for magic systems and characters battling you know magical creatures so yeah I'd love to see more of that. Yeah I know I think I think books like yours and can really bring that to the fore that would be amazing. So I just want to quickly divert a little bit into the um, actual the look of the book. I think the cover art immediately grabbed my attention. I think it's really clever and and kind of like, kind of cute, but also you get the mischievous feeling. Were you involved in the design, or did you put any thought behind it? Yes, I, I was involved in the design, not in creating it, but in uh, talking with the artist. Um, the design was at, for the cover was actually made before the book was was published. I knew that 
whatever the book ended up looking like, I really wanted the cover to be unique, to be eye-catching, and to sort of reflect a little bit of what the book was trying to capture was the sense of kind of giving readers a flavor of what the original Moore Smiths might have felt like. So the, the artist is incredible. Her name's uh, Helena Rusova, and uh, her tag on DeviantArt is Helenim. And she does amazing art. She's got followers from sort of all over the world. That's how I found her through deviant art, seeing her stuff posted on uh, Instagram and other sorts of um, artistic websites. And she's got a very, very unique style, which in fact, um, we, we, we chatted through the process of designing the first book cover. She's working on the second one right now, and I'm really excited to see uh, what that's going to look like. And we've done a few other projects together now as well. And we love nerding out about Norse myths, but uh, she also talks about how um, the color scheme she developed was developed when she was studying in Norway and she was studying ancient sort of manuscripts from the Viking times and that art style and those particular colors are actually inspired by her studies there. And so there is, while it does have like a very unique modern field that she's been able to adapt, it does have a connection back to the old types of scripts that like maybe even Vikings themselves would look at uh, those kind of colors, those kind of patterns. And of course she's done a great job of adapting it to sort of a modern eye, but uh, I, I, was absolutely blown away when I saw the cover. And I'm so glad that that's gonna be on the front of every book. Um, as I mentioned in the intro to the book too, oftentimes the cover's what catches our eye. There's so much out there right now. And I'm really hoping that uh, her unique art piece that she created for the front will uh, cause people to stop and maybe pick up the book and flip through the pages. Yeah, because the thing is, I mean, there's, there's a saying, you know, never judge a book by its cover, but the cover is, you know, the first thing that people see. And when I see something that catches my eye, I want to pick it up and then open, you know, go through the book. So I think it really is important to have have a beautiful eye-catching cover. And I, I really, I think it was the colors and the design that really got me looking at it. That's great. And I, I totally agree. The way things are right now with publishing and books, you... You just can't afford to do anything poorly. Like you've got to have an incredible story. You have to, you know, spend as much time as you can polishing it and making it as, as great as you can be. You've got to have a great cover, right? You can't just sort of throw something up and hope that it kind of goes well. Like you really have to put some time and effort into that. Like you've got to do your marketing properly. Just every stage, you need to do the best possible job you can. And uh, I, particularly with the cover, it was a little bit out of my hands as, as Helena was um, creating the design, but I'm so happy with what she did. And uh, I feel really good about how the, uh, the aesthetic of the book overall, uh, as it turned out. That's brilliant. I would like to come a little bit back to, um, you know, the whole experience, but I first want to ask you, so um, if you want to get someone into Norse mythology, what's the most interesting myth you're going to tell them? Well, I will make a recommendation on a myth, but I'll also make a recommendation on a translation. Uh, my personal favorite translation of the Norse myths is by Dr. Kevin Crossley Holland. Uh, he does a great job of sort of capturing the drama. He's got some excellent sort of historical background to the myths, but he also is great at sort of interpreting the narrative for a modern ear. And so his translation of Thor's journey to Utgard, I think is absolutely smashing. It's a, it's an adventure. There's magic. Uh, Thor and Loki are on this uh, journey because they're bored. This is often how these adventures start is the, the gods are bored in Asgard, so they're going to go do something. So um, they travel into the land of the giants and they meet a magician who creates an illusion of a giant castle. And they go through a series of challenges, many of them which are very uh, humorous, including a wrestling match with an old lady and trying to lift a monstrous cat and uh, uh, an eating contest and a drinking contest. Um, and at the end, they discover uh, that it's all an illusion. But uh, it's a great introduction to sort of the sense of humor and also the sense of sort of epic awe that the Norse myths can often capture. And it's a great place to start if you've never 
uh, read the Norse myths before. So that's Dr. Kevin Crossley Holland and his translation of Thor's journey to Utgard. And if you read that myth, you will find connections in the Gatewatch as uh, several of the scenes in the Gatewatch are inspired by that particular myth. Oh, brilliant. That actually sounds, I don't think I've ever heard of that myth. I think the most, um, the myth that my favorite myth about Thor is when he, I think he dresses up as a bride. Yes. <laughs> that is one to get his to get, is it to get his hammer back totally exactly exactly that's, yeah and, and that's so typical thor typical thor i know yeah yeah he's uh oh he the, the character who's inspired by thor um in my book was the funnest to write by far and um also the, the feedback i'm getting so far everybody so far has said grims is my favorite grims is my favorite so he's a he's a really fun personality thor is and then his adaptation in the book was uh, was a lot of fun to write too so I think you mentioned earlier that um, the artwork for a second novel is being worked on. So do you already have something going? I do. Uh, in fact, the second novel's finished. I'm in the final stages sure. of editing it. Um, I'm in communication with uh, Helena Rosova to do the cover for the second one. And honestly, I started writing the second one because I was losing my mind in the querying process. And if you're a writer and you've ever done querying, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you have never queried before, it's um, uh, the process where you pitch your book to publishers and agents, typically via email. It used to be by regular mail. Um, but you try to convince them that it's a great story and that lots of people will like it and buy the book and that they should publish you. And uh, it's a bit of a brutal process. Oftentimes, um, you'll have to wait three, six, eight months for people to get back to you. Um, and it feels a little bit sometimes like you're throwing things out into the void. But keep at it. Um, you will find somebody will find that match for your story, either an agent or a publisher. And I started writing the second book just to keep myself sane during that process. Um, and it's not a bad idea either, because now that I have the second book written uh, and the first one is finally coming out, I'll be able to follow that up with the second one, hopefully fairly soon. So is it going to be a two book thing or how, how long do you plan the series going on for? I, will, I, I envision the series to be a trilogy. So um, I actually have a third book sketched out as well, and I've got a bit better a bit of a better sense now in terms of, uh, you know, when you write your first novel, it kind of feels just like exploring a forest you've never been in before, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, how do you structure it? You know, wh what are the beats? How do I split up my scenes? How do I structure dialogue and build tension? And I feel like in the second book, I'd, I'd had a, a good go of that. I spent a lot of time editing the first book because I hadn't done it before. Uh, I learned a lot of lessons. And now the second and third book are, are pretty much planned out. I think a trilogy is always a I mean, always a good idea. Sometimes when series go on for too long, like you can kind of lose the plot. But in most trilogies that I've read, it really keeps it all together. I agree. I agree. There's something about um, a trilogy, and whether it's like a beginning, middle, end sort of thing, or just three is just a nice number, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I'm always amazed when uh, yeah books have you know number eight and number nine. And the thing that frustrates me about that is not that the story is going on for so long, but when I want to read it and I go to the library, I only ever find like book eight of a series or like book six of a series. Like I never find the first one, right? And if I'm going to start a series like that, I really want to find the first one. And that can be, that can be tricky sometimes. So yeah, no, it's, it's going to be a trilogy for, uh, for the uh, Torrin Tentries and the Troll Hunters for sure. That used to always happen to me when I went, when I went to the library, I'd be like, okay, so I've got one, two and nine. What am I going to do right. now? And you can't just read nine without reading the other ones in between, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and when I used to go to the library, it was, you know, the days before Wikipedia. I'm like, it's not like I can write, read synopsis. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, we were so lucky as to, um, my, um, my uncle, uh, who was also my godfather, uh, lived in Vancouver, and he sent us our first version when we were kids of uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but he didn't send us the three books. He found a version 
of Lord of the Rings that was all three books in one, along with a full compendium of like the Elvish language and, you know, the history of Middle Earth and all those sorts of things at the end. This thing was like, weighed like as much as a sack of flour. It was huge. And uh, I could like hardly lift it as a kid, but my dad very patiently read that to us. And uh, I guess this is where that journey took me. I was about to say that sounds like an Oxford dictionary or something like that. It could have probably outweighed some Oxford dictionaries. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, if you don't mind, is your great grandmother who told you these stories, is she still alive? No, she passed away a few years ago. Uh, but I did have the, um, I was just blessed to be able to know her uh, as a young kid and uh, always enjoyed going up to visit her. She did speak a little bit of Norwegian and she was, as most Scandinavians are, a, a ravenous coffee drinker. She probably had five or six cups of coffee a day, mm-hmm. black um, coffee, no, no sugar, no, no milk. So I always aspired to that. I'm a coffee drinker as well. So uh, I'm not at that level yet. I, at one point, I actually told her that I was, and I, I did, I took Norwegian as a language course in university after um, I got a little bit more interested in these things. And I expected her to be really happy, but she said, well, that's a waste of time. And I said, you know, my great grandma, like, why, why do you think it's a waste of time? I mean, you speak Norwegian, you came from Norway. And she said, listen, you know, in Norway, there's so many dialects, you're not gonna be able to speak to anybody. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but uh, it was a uh, kind of a funny thing from what I remember of her. <laughs> no, I'm sure she's really proud of you for, for doing this. She must be so <laughs> Thank you. Um, so just a few more things before we end off. I wanted to know, you were talking a little bit about the process in terms of publishing, etc. What's What do you think has been the best moment and the worst moment in this process? Oh my gosh, uh, that is a that is a great question. Um, the best moment... There was, there was a few highs. I'm not sure I can limit it down. I think the thing about the writing process, like this book, the process of it being written and being published is that this is a four-year process. So it's really hard to, I mean, it's kind of like taking your entire university degree and saying like, what was the one best and the one worst? So you can do that, but it's, there's so many highs and so many lows. If I had to narrow it down, I'd say typing the end on the first draft of the first book was a big, was a big day. I was very excited by that. I was worried constantly writing a book that I wouldn't be able to think of what happens next or that I, I would run out of steam or creative energy. And so to type the end was uh, was a big deal. Obviously, the phone call that I got when the book was finally published was big. I was, I can remember it still, it was a day before my birthday and I was on the ferry over to Vancouver and uh, hoping that the ferry noise wasn't too loud. And I chatted with the uh, publisher, Alex, over at uh, Crow's Nest Books in Toronto there. And uh, we chatted for about 20 minutes uh, about the book, what a launch might look like. And at the end of the phone call, he said, yeah, we want to we wanna publish the book. And that was, that was huge too. In terms of low moments, uh, the querying process was tough. Um, writing is tough. It's, it's, it's just a lot of waiting. It's, you know, it takes, at least it takes me about a year to write a book, uh, maybe longer. Then there's the editing process. You're going through that. That could take any amount of time, depending on how much needs to get fixed. The querying process is also very long. And then even once the book is published, there's a lot of steps it needs to go through to uh, to get to the final thing, which is still exciting. All those steps are exciting, but I would just say the waiting is definitely the, uh, is just the hardest part. Waiting, you know, six months to hear back from a, uh, an agent or, you know, waiting a few weeks for um, layout and stuff to be done. Uh, it's all good stuff, but it's, you have to be very patient. Yeah, no, I can't imagine what that's like. I get nervous whenever I wait for my supervisor to come back with corrections from my masters. <laughs> yeah, that too, right? That too. Well, um, that's part of the part of the second book because I, I literally, I sometimes I feel like I would have lost my mind if I just sat around thinking about 
this agent like that pitch or are these people going to pick it up or is this book ever going to see the light of day right so yeah just pick another project start working on it and yeah yeah give yourself something to to, to think about some creative sort of outlets to de-stress so going off from that now that you've now that you've got your first book out and your second one's on the way what what have you learned in this process what's your advice to to people who want to get their first book out I wish I could say that I had this great compendium of wisdom and knowledge to share with people, um, but uh, I might defer a little bit. Um, one of the, beyond my creative writing course, one of the other big influences uh, on me was a masterclass that I took, uh, and it was Neil Gaiman's masterclass on uh, writing fiction, which I really enjoyed. It was gifted to me uh, when I was doing my writing, and uh, he mentioned the rules for writers. And you'll have to forgive me, I can't remember who he was quoting, but I'm going to credit him with uh, sharing this advice with me. I think it's great advice and reflecting my own experience. That's exactly um, what it was. So they're called the rules for writers. And you may have heard of them before. You may have not. Uh, they're pretty simple. Uh, and, and they go like this. The first rule is you must write. And that mm -hmm. sounds a silly, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's true. A lot of people who want to write books, think about writing books a lot, might kind of get a start here and there, but don't commit a serious amount of time to sit down and actually write your books. So um, it might sound ridiculous, but this is the advice that uh, I know I needed when I started writing or I started thinking about writing is you just have to literally sit down and write. That's a really important step. The second rule for writers is to finish what you start. And yeah. that is much harder to do, much harder to do than uh, uh, the first step. The first step, sitting down to write. You know, writing's kind of fun. There's these highs. It's tough sometimes, but finishing things. Oh man, that is tough. There's this certain stage between about I would say 85% and 95% and something some sort of creative demons just kind of like jump on your back and try to get you to not finish it but finishing something uh, feels amazing it's so hard to do but it's something there's something you must do something yeah. you must do uh, and then the next two steps and this is kind of the stage I'm at is um, once you finish something you must edit it polish it up uh, spend the time that you need to do to uh, make the story presentable to agents and publishers. And then you need to actually put your story out into the world. And that's yeah. step number four. So uh, you have to submit to agents. You have to submit to publishers. You have to share pieces of your stories maybe with people online or at book readings. Um, you have to put yourself out there. That's, that's the last and final step. And with those four steps, you just kind of keep repeating those. You must write, you must finish, you must edit, and you must put your work out there. No, that's, that's brilliant advice because I mean, I for one, am a, I, I have so many ideas sometimes and then I start writing something and then I'm like, ah, well, I'm just going to leave this for a little bit and I never continue with it. So I'm definitely a victim of, of, of rule one. I do not just start writing. I don't put my ideas down. And that was 10 years of my life. I mean, before I started writing the Gatewatch seriously, before I really got down to business, uh, that was me, right? Just starting, I'd get a chapter done. I'd get two pages done. I'd get an idea sketched out. And uh, just time after time, they would sort of fade into the back of my idea drawer or into the back of my hard drive and would never see the light of day. But yeah, sticking with it is big. If I could maybe mention one other piece yeah. of uh, writing that really got me focused. And uh, I, I honestly, I would, I would give... Uh, this man credit for me finishing my book is Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. And he's a really interesting guy. He's a screenwriter. He's also written novels. And this War of Art is sort of just a personal manifesto of his idea of what living a creative life looks like. And he's got this idea of this thing called the resistance. And um, I'm going to encourage you to read the book. Don't take my word for it. But the idea is that there's this thing called the resistance out there. It's trying to stop you from doing your what you were made to do, your creative work. And uh, uh, it doesn't have to be um, like, like a spiritual thing. It could just be sort of like a mental frame of mind, but putting yourself in that 
frame of mind that there's something that is trying to stop me from doing this work and that this work is, is important the world would be a better place for me doing this work is really what i needed to kind of kick myself into gear and focus enough to follow through with those rules for writer that's brilliant i'm, I'm definitely going to definitely going to read that so great so when can we get a hold of the gatewatch the gatewatch is launching on may 17th 2020. So that's coming up in uh, just a little bit over a week here. Uh, it will be available at the Crow's Nest Books website. I believe um, by the time this is posted, it will be available for pre-order. So uh, you're welcome to do that. I know with coronavirus right now, the shipping might be a bit of a challenge, but uh, it will be available through that website. Uh, it'll also be available um, uh, through Amazon and uh, select bookshops as well. But May 17th is the big day. Uh, and you can find it on the Crow's Nest Books website. That's at crowsnestbooks.com. And you can also find it on Goodreads by searching the Gatewatch by Joshua Gillingham. Are you are you going to have like an ebook version of it or anything up as well? Yes, ebooks will be available for Google Books, for um, Kindle, uh, all the different formats for ebooks will be available as well. Brilliant. And just one last thing, would you be interested at all in an audiobook version of that if someone had to offer to do that or you yourself actually? I would be very interested. In fact, I was just talking to my publisher the other day about um some different formats. Uh, we talked about maybe pursuing um, a comic book, sort of visual graphic version of the book, if it uh, ends up being popular with certain demographics. But an audiobook was another thing we discussed. And uh, yes, yes, I would be. A graphic novel would be very cool. That, I think that's becoming quite a popular thing now. It has. And it's not a format I'm particularly familiar with, but I think the, um, the flavor of the story really suits that medium. So uh, I'm excited. I'm not going to make any promises, but uh, we'll just say discussions are being had. Brilliant. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on Legendary and for answering all my 101 questions. I really enjoyed this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for listening to that special bonus episode, a lovely interview with Josh Gilliam. Remember to check out his book, The Gatewatch, coming out on May 17th, 2020. And uh, one last thing from me, we want to celebrate getting more than 100 downloads on Legendary. It's been a great journey so far, and we've had so many wonderful people support us. And uh, to celebrate that, we'd like to do another special episode, this time a listener episode. So if you have any Legendary stories that have happened in your life, it could be someone that you think is a living legend, it could be a spooky, weird, or funny thing that has happened to you in your life, please do email us at staylegendarypod at gmail.com. You are welcome to send that in written format or as a voice note, but please make sure that is that is in MP3 or WAV format. And uh, your submission can be uh, with your name or anonymous. It's really up to you, whatever you prefer. Other than that, remember to stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Till the next time.